Welcome to the Rudo Love Podcast, a series of interviews and anecdotes tailored for the inquisitive souls of today. On today's Ooh Ooh interview, where I ask juicy questions to people who move me, I have Alex Smart joining me today. She's kindly agreed to come on to my eclectic show, and even kinder still agreed to answer my questions that possibly only I would want to ask of her. It's a shamelessly selfish interview and one that I'm immensely excited about because you interest me, Alex. How you've journeyed through your career, woven your wealth of knowledge, and oh, so many things. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Rudo. First, I wanted to say that I didn't feel really comfortable explaining your role or title. I mean, I could say Alex Smart, head of digital, but um, what you work on is not something I wanted to explore as much as about you and how you navigate and whatever your role or title is, it's not the entirety of who you are and how you show up or even what you do do, right? I mean, that's the complexity of these um, evocative business title names, right? Yes, that's right. They're not actually describing what you do. They kind of help people understand where you might fit, that's all. Yeah, departmental, maybe a little bit of like – you know, do you sit in HR? Do you sit in, you exactly. know, platforms and software? Like it's indicative, but not necessarily. Exactly. Mm, yeah. But yeah, you, who you are in in context for dear listeners that might not understand the depth of how we've uh, danced and journeyed in our existence together. I worked with you in my work and you had this incredible moment with me where you kind of saw me beyond what it was I was um, contracted to do. Yeah. And you queried, you know, where where are you going? What is it that you want to do? And you spoke to this kind of, there's an intersection between what you want to do and what you're good at, but they're not the same thing. And so you spoke to how your passions, what you're good at, mm-hmm. and your drive and like what fuels you might be really, really different aspects. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit um, for the listeners? Yeah, sure. I think um, the difference is between your passion and your skills. So often in your life, you learn some skills that you become really good at. And it's often a journey that you've taken perhaps, you know, at the beginning of your career or beginning of your life, you went down a certain path. And so you've learned to do some things well. But it's not necessarily the thing that if, you know, you had your time again that you would choose to do. It's not your passion. And I think we often get stuck in the things we're good at, but not the things we're passionate about. And I mean, I saw that in you. Um, You were very good at what you were doing, but it didn't seem to me like that's where your passion lay. Aspects of it, definitely. But I could see you were super passionate about people and you were highly empathetic and, you know, but you're in a data role. And probably something because you you could do that data role, but you're a very excuse me, no <laughs> battling <laughs> battling with some threat, <laughs> yeah, today. a very people uh, people person, and so that seemed to be where your passion lay. Mm. And in my life, it's very similar. I left school. I've had this weird weird journey in my life, so <laughs> I can touch on it a little bit. But one of my weird journeys is from be, being a registered nurse into my current role of head of digital one of the journeys um, with many kind of weird ones in the middle as well. And I think, you know, I was a great registered nurse actually, really good, but it really wasn't where my passion lay. Mm. 
And I, so I made choices in my journey to follow my heart. And I've had this weird journey, which we can talk about at some point, through my career, through various roles that are really different. In fact, if you looked at my CV, you would find it very difficult to understand what I actually was. Yeah. I LinkedIn stalked you um, when I found out that you were going to be my new boss. Mm -hmm. And actually, no, when you were interviewing for that, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm going to ask her questions about her path. How did she go from healthcare to coding and software? Yeah. Yeah. So good question. (laughs) Um, So I think there are points in your life where you, you have the opportunity to make a different choice. And one of those points for me was we went and me and my partner went and did our OE overseas in my mid twenties and I'd been nursing and we had a little two year old, I was 28 and it was kind of a point in time to make a choice. So I could have gone to the UK and worked as a nurse over there as well. Mm. But I didn't really want to do that. I wanted the opportunity to do something different. And I wanted the opportunity to pursue um, a lot of my music interests. So I'll talk about music in a minute. But oh, yeah. one of the biggest parts of my life has, has been as a musician. And I wanted a job or a role that kind of blended with that really well. And it was kind of the the dot-com boom era, which will tell all of you listening that I'm actually quite old. <laughs> um, but it was a very exciting time for the digital world. It Absolutely. Was, yeah, it was the first emergence of the web. Um, my husband is, you know, really technical, um, really into technologies. And so I've always been fascinated by what he was doing. He's in a different side of it than me, not software. And so when I went there, I went, okay, what can I do that I'm passionate about, but that allows me the flexibility to have my two-year-old and to form part of this band that I was in and be able to kind of um, continue my music career aspirations. And so I went, okay, well, I'm going to be a web developer. So I was a nurse and I thought, no, I'm going to, I looked at all of the elements of the things that I enjoyed. I, I like creativity. I love technology, you know. Um, and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. So I spent, I actually did a six-month diploma, half diploma certification on coding mm-hmm. and then just leapt into it. Got my first client, started coding. It was right back in the day when everyone was learning. So again, it's all those intersecting points of opportunity, yeah. new country, new industry. So really op- good opportunity. And I actually spent the next seven years blending web design and development with my, with my music path. So yeah. Oh my goodness. So mm. you what do you mean by you blended web design with your music path? So I would gig in the evenings, sleep till 12 and <laughs> not start work until 1, work till about 8, but in between kind of spent time with my little one and you know was able to work from home. So it was kind of that very blended um work. Oh, gotcha. Work life balance. Yeah, but kind of blending the job into that as as well. I mean, web, oh, really? Yeah, design is really creative no matter what medium you use. So music's creating noise. Yep. Um, in a certain way, you know, be it through an instrument, your voice. Lyric writing is creating stories, which you can then blend with music. And then web design is is um creating spaces that people want to visit, engage with, and that have experiences that customers engage with. So all of it's in the creative realm. Mm-hmm. Coding and music, believe it or not, particularly classical music, is quite similar. It's very mathematical music. Mm-hmm. It's very logical. 
um, rhythm is broken up into very logical blocks. You know, harmony, melody, it's all, it's quite mathematical. Even mm-hmm. sound is in hertz. So, you know, it's a, it's a mathematical equation. So I think, yeah, I think that, that kind of journey, they were very aligned. But did you use your desire to create music in in some of the software platforms that you were exploring as well like did you go into musical editing at that point oh yeah yes absolutely yep i um used logic which is a form of software back in the day for production so i did quite a lot of music production i created a whole orchestral album with no real instruments all programmed I, did, I mean, that? I did use a keyboard to play it in, but, you know, oboes, clarinets. I used um, orchestral orchestral scores to play the music and read the music and play it in. That sounds pretty normal for nowadays, but I'm yes. assuming that was, like, groundbreaking no. for when you were doing Back it. Back then, nobody did that. And I had to, because the samples... Samples these days are, are awesome. Samples were okay back then. Um, I had to go in and edit every single hit for, say, bowing, because I, I play the cello. So and I know what a bowed string should sound like, and the sample didn't quite sound like that. So I had to, you know, um, change the pressure on the actual each hit inside Logic. So it was 600 hours of programming that album, but I'm really proud of it. Yeah, it was great. So yes, I did blend. Sorry, Rudo. Literally um, yeah, and literally <laughs> work-life balance. <laughs> yeah, raising a child and raising a child. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I mean, speaking of raising a child, how did mothering and becoming a mother, and I guess that's like a doing and a being, how did that change how you see the world? Oh, totally changed how I see the world. I think any mother tell you the same thing. So you start to see the world through somebody else's eyes, but really see it through somebody else's eyes, like a child. (laughs) And you start to also know that the world is far bigger than yourself. And actually, you become a lot less selfish as a person, I think. So it taught me a lot about empathy, about listening to people, about watching what experience does, Mm. about um, putting others first. <laughs> um, even though I thought I was a pretty compassionate, selfless person, it wasn't really tested until I had a child. Yeah. Um, then you really understand <laughs> what that looks like. But yeah, it radically changed my view on the world. I wouldn't change having a child for anything. And everybody has a different journey with their child. And some are really hard journeys, but every journey adds that kind of story and value to your life. Yeah. Mm. Really important. Beautiful. That's gorgeous. So you were blending music, your kind of emotional intelligence that's um, that kind of comes with the reckoning of motherhood mm-hmm. and and coding. Mm. I I love the kind of recognition that's kind of really popular now that music and math are so, you know. And but also, is there? Do you know if there's an overlap between medicine and music? Yeah, definitely. It's actually proven. Um, music is very therapeutic. It actually um, touches alpha waves in your brain. You kind of um, they've done research to show um, that certain types of music make you react in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It's particularly true. I think you know they've done a lot of um, study around classical music and study, for instance. And, and how that helps you focus. But I know in Alzheimer's, there's been a huge amount of research done on how people with Alzheimer's respond to music. Mm. 
and they actually it, it really helps them with their confusion and everything else um it actually really helps ground them so yeah music and medicine <laughs> are really for me um i think they're really intertwined did you get mm. to play around with that much in the work that you were doing tell us a little bit about yeah. um what you were working on yeah in the in the early days in the early days in my in my um, medical days and in, in things in doing kind of um, when you so nursing um, yeah like when you went from nursing to coding and software you were still kind of within the medical ecosystem as you would say right oh no, i completely no. stepped out uh-huh. first time but i went back into it with those things yeah you did i did yeah so i'll tell you a story about that so um i was a public health nurse when i so I, I did this journey where I did nursing solidly and then I did web development solidly. And then I took those two things and I came back into the nursing workforce or the, the medical workforce. And I became a public health nurse in a little, I don't know where all your listeners are from, but in a little town. All over. All over. A little town in New Zealand in Auckland called Clendon, which is really high needs. No, the, uh, you're thinking of Clevedon. Oh, yeah, I yeah. am. You're right. So Clendon is... Um, Really high needs. It has two of the largest, what we call SIFS offices. They've probably got a different name now, but Child Youth and Family Services offices and very um, needy families there. And so my job there was to work with children in schools who were at high risk. And I was a child abuse specialist nurse there. And so it was It was really, it was hard going. But some of the schools that I worked in um, had these children that just, they literally had no families after school. They had nowhere to go. Mm. Um you know, those families are working hard. Some of those families are doing two um, menial jobs back to back for minimum wage just to survive. So I started, and this wasn't part of my job, and I probably, you know, would have been in trouble if <laughs> if they known I were doing this in my in my role. So if anyone's listening from County's District Health Board, close your ears. But I started an after school music class for these kids. I just hung around after my day job. And we got these kids to write songs, write their own music, and then recorded them. Um, So I just bought all my software in, and and once they'd written them, we recorded them all, and then I burnt a CD back in the day. Um, (laughs) We had CDs. um, Gave them all one to take away, and that was their thing to do, and we did that for a whole term. And I've still got – they all wrote me a letter, like I've got an individual letter back from each of those kids you know, and I've still got those letters. It was incredible. But the change in those kids mm. was incredible. Like, I mean, I was seeing them for things like, you know, bad eczema and skin sores and, you know, things that stress in that brain. But because, you know, we were giving them after school um, snacks and good food and they were doing these things with us and they did it for a whole term, actually. And I think some of these things were stress-driven we saw an improvement in their health, which I know sounds weird, but we, we actually all. did. Not at all. Um, so, yeah, that was a really important moment for me, I think. Not long after that, I actually left the actual practice of nursing mm. and went more into doing – I was part of the um, Coavitea Innovation Hub at County's Medical District Health Board, which was a place for uh, monetizing medical inventions. And also training new workforce and then um, went on this kind of weird journey into construction, which we can talk about a bit later, and then another journey back into health and then into insurance, (laughs) where I currently sit. So, yeah, we can talk about those things in a minute. But that was one really um, pivotal moment in my life I'll never forget. Oh, my kids. God. Mm. 
Have you done projects like that recently that kind of speak to that era for you? Yeah, I um just before COVID actually, I did a music night at the Kingslander in a place called Kingsland <laughs> here in Auckland, which is a very trendy kind of area of Auckland, very eclectic. But what I've noticed in in my music career, particularly in my younger years, we had a lot of live venues in New Zealand, a mm. lot. And that's really, with the um, kind of resurgence of digital music, ooh, the actual uh, availability of live venues has really tanked. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to kind of work with venues to convince them that doing uh, a live venue or having a live venue available would be good for business. Not yeah, for business. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. So um, we invited. We set it. I set it up with a couple of musician friends of mine who are well respected, and just invited any new songwriter to come and perform. And they could do three songs. We would pay for everything. Um, full. Everything was covered. And we had this awesome venue in the Kingsland upstairs. The whole um, area is beautiful. It, they just had to be songs that hadn't been yet published. Oh, wow. And that were their own. Right. And it, honestly, we were so oversubscribed. We had about four hours worth of amazing music, and the place was just absolutely packed. It, it was an amazing night, and we had intended to run these in different parts of New Zealand, one in Wellington, but of course COVID hit and it, it shut everything down. But some of those um, groups have gone on to do really well. Oh, fantastic. But that was one another thing that's basically just trying to help, um, you, you know, young music come through, young original New Zealand music come through, yeah. And have you found it to be like a relatively – and I say easy with a complete caveat that that's like a spectrum of, of perception. But have you found keeping up your music with like your day job, so to speak, easy? Yeah, actually. I know that sounds weird. No. <laughs> but yes, I have. I mean, even recently I was working with a guy called um, Jeff Smith. He um, quite a famous, a famous Welsh filmmaker. I was smashing those words together. Yeah. <laughs> So he was making a series of short films recently mm. and I've been recording cello for him on oh. a couple of the tracks, yeah, which is really cool. They actually just finished. He died um, weekend before last oh. and he'd been racing to finish all of his projects before he did oh. and he managed to finish majority of them and all the film scripts and everything else and his subtle carry on that work I'm sure but we just last we just met last weekend at the recording studio to listen to the final album and kind of have a few drinks and celebrate his life he wasn't that old unfortunately so yeah uh, so that's been something I've done recently yeah I've always done something all of the time it's just because it's a part of my life I mean I have my grandparent at home and even sometimes when I've just had a bad week, I'll just sit down and pick something out to play. And yeah, yeah. So it's it's just my just to give you a bit of context. My mum was a concert pianist; she was very good. My dad was a super clever mathematician, just you know, a really a brainiac in maths, totally unmusical in his view. I think he was. He was just afraid to do music. <laughs> I think everyone's musical. 
but a kind of weird combination. But it meant in my house that I learned to read music before I learned to read English. So we started really young, like before, way before we started school learning <laughs> piano. So it's always been there. Like yeah. I've always done music and something else. Yeah. So I think that that thread has just been there the whole life, my whole life. Always will be. But I mean, for some people, that would have been like foisted on them. Like I've heard mm. so many people say that they were forced Mm. to learn these things or, you know, like the entire family expected them to carry on in the musical tradition. Yeah. And yet for you, it's like like breathing. That's just like your second nature. Like you yeah. love it. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong, in my teenage years, um, <laughs> I'm sure I was a bit rebellious there. I can remember a few fights, but it just felt like it was what you did in our family. You know, some families, they do cricket or some families do whatever they do, we did music. I think what also helped me was when I was about 12, I decided I didn't want to only do this classical thing. Mm. Um, I wanted to be in contemporary music as well. And that's mm. when my songwriting sort of started there um, in my more contemporary side. My sister is a professional musician and she's always been classical and she still is. She's a violinist. But for me, I think having that blend young really helped me kind of stay the course. Yeah. I love what you said earlier around m m lyrics being the storytelling, well, the dominant storytelling component of a song and likening it to the aspects of situating people in a digital environment mm. and how you, like if I'm thinking about the main difference of classical, <laughs> like unless yeah. it's opera, there's not, yeah. there's not lyrics, right? Yeah, so like, correct, yeah. For you... Like how much does the the narrative of of our human existence matter to you? Ah, oh, really matters. The storytelling, I think, has got really lost in our Pakeha world. And for those of you listening from overseas, you know our white European centric world. Yeah, I think we used to have a rich history of storytelling, but we've kind of lost it. But there are a lot of cultures around where that is the primary way that history is passed on. And I feel like we're kind of, in our different ways, recreating some of that storytelling culture. Through song. Yeah, through yeah. song. So music is one really strong way. If you think about the proliferation in America of all the different genres, yeah, you know, those each of those genres represent a, a story, a, a threaded story through a community. It's yes. not just one person. Yes. From hip-hop to pop to jazz to whatever you're looking at. You know, I think in the in the early days of Eurocentric culture in the classical world, you didn't have that same. Uh, it was more monolithic view, but mm -hmm. we're kind of creating now these rich stories in a different way. Mm. Yeah, and so I think there's a lot of storytelling that's going on that is that us trying to come back to our roots. But if you look to other cultures, Maori and New Zealand, for instance, you know, song is a big music. Singing is just part of the the, the norm um, storytelling is everything mm. even the language comes down to a name has a story and I feel like I feel like that doesn't just belong to Maori or you know it belongs to all of us and that we've all had that rich history but we just haven't we've been so out of touch with ours for a really long time yeah go back to our Celtic roots and you can probably find all that richness again absolutely but we've lost that path yeah, yeah. Yeah, my dad's side is is Jewish. Mm. And so, you know, the the eloquence of not just like the philosophy of Judaism and how much inquiry 
goes into storytelling. It's not just the story. It's what is what is being unfolded here. What are you learning through this? Everything is through dialogue and questioning, mm-hmm. and but then just like the the richness of all of the different holidays having the story around them as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean it's a, another really rich culture. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um. Ooh. Ooh, delicious. This is delicious. <laughs> Can I just say I'm very much enjoying myself? <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> um, going back to what you said around the web and being like there for some of like the, the burgeoning and blossoming of, of what we now know. Mm. What were some of the things that you have always loved about the web? Oh, I love the fact that you can communicate with people without having to be there thousands and millions of people without having to be you know face to face and in the in the room it's just another form of communication i think you have to be really careful with that form of communication um yeah and that's where i think a deep understanding of customer experiences what it is that you're trying to convey all of that that knowledge is kind of built over time in this digital journey we've been on Back in the day, (laughs) when we started that journey, it was very raw. It was really um, not well understood. Mm. And I think, you know, we we learned a lot as we went through that that process of understanding the customer better. Yeah. So, I mean, we've heard heaps about the kind of toxicity of Silicon Valley and these um, like horrific things that happen in the name of innovation. But where do ethics lie now for you? when you are interacting online? Good question. Ethics, well, ethics start before you even get online. So I think... That's interesting. Yeah. Like you talk about Silicon Valley and some of the toxicity there, and that's endemic actually in technology. In my role currently as head of digital, most of the meetings I go to are for heads of or senior leadership in the tech world are all men. Mm. Very rarely, and I am, am am I in a meeting where I'm not the only woman in that meeting room. Mm. Now, in my team, we're a fifty fifty team of technology actually at Travel. We're fifty percent women, fifty percent men. Yep, at the moment, um, but we don't. So you know that's not the norm. So you've got um, kind of ethics there of of representation, mm-hmm. and that's just one type of representation there's lots of other representation we should be thinking about also but then you know you take those things those you take those things that you have in your team and the you know the creativity that you have in your team and the things that you develop into the digital space so you can't you can't be something you can't develop something there that you you're not outside of that space does that make sense i don't think i'm making any sense there but like the the human experience of who you're yeah designing so, for yeah so if you if you come from a toxic culture that isn't representative then you're going to develop things that are not representative because right. you because the thought process behind those are not there yeah so it all starts with the team that is doing the the work and then then I think that team goes, oh, have we thought about that? Have we thought about accessibility? Have we thought about, you know, that um, what a woman's perspective or, you know, an LGBT community's perspective or a, you know, a particular culture's perspective? Now, you mm-hmm. can't you can't put that lens on unless your team is representative of that lens. And yeah. so I think a lot of these problems have come, have stemmed from the actual um, businesses themselves yeah 
this kind of like isolated hmm. ivory tower still exists. Yeah. I mean, Facebook's a prime example. It came out of a guy wanting to post up images of women and then get guys to rate them. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's what Facebook was. Mm-hmm. Toxic. <laughs> so is it any wonder to us now that Facebook does what it does with our data and everything else? Is I mean, why is anybody surprised at that? I'm not. Or surprised at the impact of what you do on it. You yeah. know, there's still people, people who don't realize that it's a public-facing platform. You're, just yeah. because it's on your page doesn't yeah. mean it's yours. No. Or the fact that, you know, the bullying that goes on on it and the, the targeted um, messaging that goes on there and the fact that that's okay to Facebook. Right. Because it started with the bullying. Premise, the premise was, was we want to be able to access women in a predatory way. Correct. So why are we surprised that that's exactly what we've got now? You know, I'm just, yeah. Really good point, Alex. Yeah. And so that's why I think it starts with the people not the digital channel. The channel is just a built experience that yeah. represents the company or the person behind it. Yeah. So what what opportunity or do have you had are you <laughs> what I'm trying to say is do you challenge bias when you're in those meetings with mostly men or are you kind of like saving up your cards? Like what's your yeah, good good <laughs> question there, Rudo. And that's a challenging one for me. I think um, I've gained confidence in that over the years. I feel the, you know, cultural norms now are different. Um, it's okay actually to say, well, it's okay to say that's not okay. But, you know, 15 years ago when I was in the same situation, it wasn't okay to challenge. Mm. Um, and I've been in some terrible experiences actually where it's been, you know, real misogyny mm. um, and I felt uncomfortable to speak up right these days I would 100% do it but yeah I, it's been a journey for me I mean I grew up in an era that it wasn't okay for women to um, have the same voice we had to work twice as hard to get to the same place and even now you know when you look back at movies again art representing culture when you look back at movies made even in the 80s and you look at how women are treated in those movies, yeah, very, very different to how they are now. Yes. Um, so I think there's a little bit ingrained in me um, that I've had to fight against and still do actually, that kind of imposter syndrome feeling that, you know, <laughs> do I have the right to be here? You know, <gasps> do I have something of value to add? Yeah, I think I still fight against that, Rudo. So wow. It's a good challenge to me when I get into these rooms to feel confident. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if you want to like dig into it or unpack an experience that you and I had where we were in a meeting and it was just so clear that the group of men that were in the room thought that they could answer your very specific question with something so noncommittal and so vague. And so you pushed again and you um, asked for more detail and you got even more specific on a technical level. Mm. And the look of like shock and fear. Yeah. Like that mixture of shock A, we didn't know that yeah. you knew that. Yeah. And like, but there was like a, oh shit, we actually have to own up to some kind of honesty yeah. here. But then for me, what we de debriefed after that was mm. the kind of, double-edged sword coin mm -hmm. double-edged 
side, I don't know, double-sided coin yeah. of yeah. being underestimated as a woman. Absolutely, Rudo. <laughs> 100%. You are talking about my daily life. So <laughs> I, I will go, I'll go into a room of men and they'll go, oh, um, and they'll look at me and say, oh, this is going to be a bit of a technical conversation. And I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. I'm like, yes, it, that's fine. Bring it on. I'm technical. <laughs> But you know, it's like it's like because I'm a woman, I, I currently have blonde hair, which probably doesn't help. You know, and and because you know, women come in all kind of forms, just like men. You know, so you might choose to look one way or another. But if you happen to want bright nails and blonde yeah. hair and yeah. ultra feminine clothes, and you're in a technology world. You're certain you're tarred with a certain stigma. Does that make sense? It does indeed. And I think um, a lot of my friends will yeah. be resonating with you and nodding yeah. along right now. Yeah. So I choose those things and I'm not going to change them. I'm currently today sitting in front of you with bright yellow nails because it's spring and I felt yes. like doing that. Yep. But you know, I'll go into a room and I'm instantly judged that I'm not technical. I must be there because I'm either a project manager or a management or but I can't possibly be technical. Until they start talking and then they realize I am pretty technical. Now, I know enough to know that in, you know, technology is this very broad subject. It's like surgery. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get someone who is an orthopedic surgeon to operate on your brain. Right. Right. It's the same in technology. So my, my depth of specialty is in software development. So in infrastructure, I'm pretty light on the road. But, you know, I know enough in infrastructure to call bullshit. <laughs> Um, and I know I know more than what people think, but I know because I'm married to one that deep knowledge of infrastructure is mm. a totally different space because he has that deep knowledge, but he doesn't know anything about software development. So, you know, technology is a very broad subject, but I am a technologist. Yeah. I am technical. Yeah. Um, and But I face what you just talked about before every single day. And yet if I was a 50-year-old male sitting in front of them, they wouldn't they wouldn't question that I technically knew what I was talking about, which I find so interesting. The irony. Yeah, <laughs> so interesting. I actually, though, Rudo, am a bit naughty. I do use it to my advantage. Why not? Yeah. I can listen to the bullshit for a while and they think that they're getting away with it and then at the time I choose to, I can call it. So yeah, it does work for me sometimes. It's like um, knowing a foreign language and not letting on as yes. people. <laughs> I, love, I love that sense when like the, the people don't know what you know. Yeah. Gosh, thank you for allowing me to ask that oh, kind of okay. question. Oh, good. <laughs> I hope actually that other women who are listening, one of my one of my current passions is women in technology. Yes. Yeah. And I'm intending to really work with my team to give them some Oh, what's the word? Not promotion, but, you know, visibility. Give other people visibility of what amazing women they are. My um, lead developer, so she runs all the development, is the most incredible woman in technology. She's a young mum. She's got little ones, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, I think, or three-year-old. She's, you know, fully doing lead development, running all of our new products, launches, and everything else. Incredible woman, Manera. I want that to be celebrated. Yes. Mua Moores, our lead test, oh. Lisa, you know, she's an incredible um, technical BA. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just across the board in every area of our technology, we've got women who are 
phenomenal. Yeah. And so my goal actually over the next few years is to develop those guys to have a real presence in New Zealand, involve them in forums, form in technology. Yeah. Really try and raise the profile of women in technology so that no longer in 10 years time we're going to walk into a room and they're no. going to think are you technical no. that won't even won't even be a question yeah. won't even be on anybody's mind we're yeah. so getting there mm. because of that kind of work it's yeah. a, it's intentional work right yeah it's got to be intentional yeah. yeah were you around when um we had um alina from storio come and talk about women and no. uh, gender diverse folk and women in tech yeah so she did a lunch bite session yeah you can hire out alina from storio and yeah. have her come and what um we ended up uh co-funding um sponsoring um some of the interviews that she did for that and we had one of our tech leads um in there as well and just this like richness of story these yeah. you know like un unanswered and unseen uh success stories yeah yeah i yeah that is amazing rudo um we need more of those stories again back to storytelling mm. um yeah <laughs> i mean i think one area we're still struggling in technology is gender diversity we mm-hmm. do have now um as you know as you say more women but we're still not as diverse as we should be yeah you know we're developing technology for all communities yeah that's actually interesting because that kind of wraps up the question that i had around ethics and tech yeah one of this incredible piece of work that i've seen in aotearoa is why gender a form why ask for someone's either biological or gender identity if you don't need it for your product or for your service 100 percent and age (laughs) <laughs> age exactly yeah exactly yeah all of all of the it's like we just love to compartmentalize people rudo we yeah. just as human beings you know we like to do that i mean i i do think the world has grown a lot since i was <laughs> since i was young but um yeah we've got a long way to go there technology some some domains really do lag mm. i feel like technology is one of those domains which is weird because it's like the fastest moving yeah, Beef. health, health as well. Health oh. and technology both really lag. I feel the areas that require really specialized, well, no, lots of areas require specialized knowledge, but yeah, some some domains just particularly struggle. Mm. Yeah, here's to a world in which we break down those barriers. Absolutely, Rudo, hundred percent, and to being a part of breaking them down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just <laughs> we're we're in a green star room, so the, the room just went dark, and I made some noises, and the lights just came on. Yeah, very appropriate. Right. The lights just came on at the right moment. Oh, okay. far out. That's oh, beautiful, symbolic. Before I move into my random question segment, did you want to cover off anything about kind of um, the story of you as contained within this podcast? Oh. I- no, I have such a weird story, Rudo. Honestly, <laughs> I'll give you a quick road trip. I um, started as a nurse, went into web development, came back to nursing, went into medical innovations, uh, got recruited to uh, build a multi-story building, run all the technologies inside that for MIT, our MIT in New Zealand, by the way, for those of you who know the MIT in America. Then came back out of that into the back into health, back into primary care, and then into um, health insurance. And now I'm in travel insurance. So if you looked at my career, you'd think that is super weird. 
but all of that journey has formed my story Mm. and the person that I am and how I behave in the role that I'm in, all of it was necessary. It wasn't a single part of that journey that I would change. Which is quite a fantastic statement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some of it wasn't great, but all of it was useful. (laughs) Oh my God. I could literally give a thousand follow-up questions to all of that. But for the interest of time, mm. I'll tell you my, my deep, deep curiosity of who you are and yeah. how you've navigated the world. But I think what we've got is something so deliciously moving and potent. Mm. I'm moving into, and now for something completely different. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so given that it's coming into spring here in Aotearoa in the Southern Hemisphere, I uh, have changed up my two questions. So you are the first person to hear these new questions. So question number one, (laughs) if you could design a spaceship Mm -hmm. to travel to other galaxies, describe what it would look like or behave, you know, how it would, how it would fly or move through space and time. Gosh, that's a tricky question. You can be vague. It can be like light or it could be technical or whatever you want. Yeah. So I'm all about the journey. So I know some people would want to have a machine that could just zip from point A to point B and not travel through space. But I would like something that would travel through space. And I grew up with Star Trek, so I'd kind of like something with a big window. Yeah. Yeah. So my spaceship would have a big window. It would have a garden inside with some trees and birds and animals that came with us. And um, it would float through space and it would take its time and it would stop at different places that it wanted to and we could be able, you know, we'd be able to see the stars and the planets moving by. Yeah, that would be my spaceship. Fantastic answer. Delicious. (laughs) Okay. So what is a practice of nourishment or cup filling that you have found particularly helpful in recent weeks or months or years? Mm. It's got to be music. It always comes back to that. <laughs> always. Never. So, yeah, so two things, um, being able just to sit down and, and play my piano um, whenever I want, such a privilege. I feel so lucky. And then, you know, working on Jeff's uh, soundtracks for his stuff recently has just been, it's just been amazing. I've often thought, oh, I'm too tired. I can't, I can't do it this weekend. And I thought, no, no, I've committed to it. I'll go. And I've come away from that going, I feel so good. So real cup filling. Yeah. It has to be music. Beautiful. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, I'm wrapping up, dear listener and distant listeners. And I just wanted to kind of reaffirm the the purpose of these interviews, which is to kind of create a breadth and a width to a person's life and you know, I tailor these to the curious souls. And in that, what I mean is, should something spark, dig, mm-hmm. geek out on something, you know, the the depth that you go into a topic has to be spurred because of something that you've heard or something that you've been inspired by. Mm-hmm. So what I hope to do is to create like a cornucopia of topics within one interview to show the actual spectrum of human experience. And then it's your job, dear listener, to go, okay, I'd like to now know a little bit more about something that was brought up. So I hope that has landed for you. And I'm just so grateful for the time that you've given us, Alex. Oh, 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So as we approach the end of this episode, I'd be remiss if I did not take a moment to voice gratitude. Gratitude to the um, curiosity and the curious souls, guides, inspirational elements that support me. Thank you to this blue and green earth that supports my life and the flora and fauna that create equilibrium and beauty I'm so lucky to behold. Thank you to the ancestors that dwell within these bones and the veil in which often overlaps and whispers in our ears. Thank you to the people in our lives, the network of support and unconditional love in which we rest. Thank you to Bjorn for engineering, producing, and supporting the packaging up of this delicious experiment. And thank you, dear listener, for your time and for choosing to engage and play with us. Kakitiano ho ia koto. Thank you.